for the Craft Podcast. I'm Michael Rogg. And I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. <laughs> this is episode 10 of the Craft Podcast, Time to First Bite. The Craft Podcast serves the community of developers, designers, business people, content creators, and everyone else who uses the Craft Content Management System to build awesome products and experiences on the web. With this podcast, we're aiming to, quite literally, give voice to the Craft CMS community to bring you relevant news, to answer questions, and help develop your skills, and to celebrate the awesome things you're accomplishing with Craft in your tool belt. And I'm very pleased to be here with you again, Andrew. Thanks for uh, for coming back. This is actually our second time recording this episode because yep. we had more mic issues. Uh, so we hate we hate my old headset. Yes. I have it buried in a shallow grave out in my property. Do you really? I hope that you actually do. That's where it belongs. For I all do. the pain, my dogs actually <laughs> dug it up and they're chewing on it and running around with it. It was kind of funny. The... Like you see the dogs running around with the headset on their head. Oh, good. Well, for all yeah. for all the pain and misery that uh, that Mike has caused us, good good riddance. All right, so uh, we're following on our last episode uh, about performance. Um, last time we talked mostly about sort of in browser performance, and on this follow up episode. We're talking about time to first byte. So how can we tune our uh, server environments so that they return a response as quickly as possible? But before we get into that, let's give a quick summary of where we left off last time. Yeah, in the last episode, which is, I believe, episode 9 yep. of the Craft Podcast. Yep. Um, and you can get that covered, at craftpodcast.com slash 9. Nice. Uh, we covered a whole bunch of testing tools, talked about why performance matters, and primarily talked about in-browser rendering and uh, things that be can, can be done to kind of optimize that. And I had uh, something come to my attention relatively recently in the craft slack that I had known about, but I completely forgot, and it's really applicable to what we're doing. And uh, there was a, a guy in there who was discussing that he went to a Google seminar on uh, SEO and that type of thing. Uh, and he mentioned that the Googlebot, the thing that actually crawls your website, has something called a crawl budget, right? And this crawl budget is measured in units of time. So, and you know, the amount of time that the Googlebot will allocate to your site depends on how big it is, how important Google thinks it is, et cetera, et cetera. But essentially, the crawl budget is a amount of time. And Google will crawl your site for that amount of time, and then it will move on. Right, so the more performant your site is, the more pages that the Googlebot is able to load during its budgeted time, the more stuff you're going to have indexed on your site, which is yet another reason why performance is super important, not just for the humans that are interacting with your website, but also for Google and other bots that are crawling it. So when Googlebot makes a request, it starts a timer, and when that timer ends, it just gives up and moves on. Yep. Just period. It's like, you know, if you go up to a girl at a bar, you've got a certain period of time to impress her. And after that, after that time is up, you're done. She's just, she's walking away and moving on. And the answer to that problem is definitely time to first bite. <laughs> sure. So time to first bite is how long when uh, the, the time period between you type something into your web browser and the first bite of data is sent back from the web server. 
And it's important to understand that time to first bite is only, you know, kind of part of the equation, right? Because, you know, how quickly you get that first bite back is one thing, but how long does it take for it to send over all the data that is needed to render your site is, is kind of a, a whole nother story. But between when the client makes the request and when your server sends back whatever its first byte of data is, there's an awful lot of clockwork that goes on. And let's, for the moment, just take DNS out of the equation. Uh, right. We'll just assume that DNS happens instantly in a miracle world. But uh, Which it doesn't, and there are high-performance uh, DNS hosts out there if you care yeah. about that kind of thing. But for our purposes today, we care about your server receiving a request from the client deciding which resource or resources match that request, spinning up the the web server process, spinning up PHP, going and making queries to the database, and assembling everything that it needs to send back that first byte of data. Right, right. And in pursuit of this, I just want to kind of relate a personal story. So I have a VPS where I host uh, a number of websites, and as soon as I, you know, there, there are a number of technologies that I am not using on that. And the reason why I'm using some uh, older technologies like um, older versions of PHP, Apache, et cetera, et cetera, is that I have a number of expression engine sites that are hosted on there. And I'm definitely worried that, in fact, I know that they're going to break if I start using a number of uh, the kind of more modern tools. So what I ended up doing is I ended up creating a new VPS and installing the latest and greatest of a lot of the technologies that are powering the web these days to move all of my new craft sites uh, over to there and to kind of measure the performance difference. And it was actually pretty amazing. So we're going to talk about all of these in detail, but I essentially went from a LAMP server, which stands for Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP, you know, version 5.5, I think it was, over to what uh, the crazy kids these days are calling a LEMP server, uh, which is, again, Linux. Uh, the E is for Nginx. Uh, the M, in this case, is for uh, MariaDB, as opposed to MySQL, and we'll get into that. And the P, in this case, is for PHP 7. And it was pretty am amazing. I was seeing my both the time to first byte and also the total uh, time spent to render my website, you know, measured in all those cool tools that we talked about in episode nine. I was seeing that cut in half, sometimes even more than half. And I was just, I was pretty blown away that kind of just by changing the infrastructure, I was doubling the performance of my website. Yeah, and that's not uncommon. We've talked to a lot of folks, my studio included, who have made similar infrastructure changes and have seen astounding results for a relatively small amount of changeover effort. So let's dissect those one by one. The, the first thing that a lot of people think of is their web server. And what I ended up switching over to is Nginx. And Nginx is a, a project that initially was born out of the idea of performance. And, and I, I think, uh, Michael, Michael, you, you have, have something to, to, to note about, about in terms of where that actually came from. from. Well, yeah, so, so Nginx, well, 
we should back up and talk about Apache. You know, Apache is we will. is sort of the we'll get to it. Um, the tried and true web right. server, and it w- was sort of born out of the very beginnings of the web back in right. like '95. And so the the ethos of Apache is that you can run it anywhere, and it will run anything. Right. And right. and no matter what you throw at it, it will just work. And so, right. so Apache is sort of standard on the vast majority of PHP hosting services, and a lot of people are using it by default because it's been there and it's always been there. Um, but as we have talked a little bit about in, in the last episode, um, Apache has to actually do quite a bit of front-end work in order to achieve that just works magic. Right. And, and so then along comes Nginx, and Nginx was started... In the early 2000s, I think the first release was like 2004, and it came out of the what they called the C10K problem. So can we build a server that will handle 10,000 concurrent requests? And right. so from the very beginning, the ethos of Nginx isn't necessarily run anywhere and run anything. It's be extremely performant by cutting absolutely all of the cruft that we could possibly cut and build the system to be just super, super performant. And so you're starting to see now Nginx becoming more and more popular, especially with developers like us who are very performance-minded. Um, and yep. it's starting to gain a lot of popularity there. But but that's sort of why Nginx is considered so much more performant is because it came from a place of can we handle 10,000 concurrent connections on our system? Right. And every design and I, decision and I, and came I, from that. And I think a couple important points here, although Nginx may be new to you, you know, it may be something that you've heard of and just haven't done anything with, and it may seem exotic. It's actually been around for a pretty long time. I mean, a decade in software terms oh, yeah. is a extremely long time, yeah. right? And you may also be thinking, well, I mean, I'm just making a website for a coffee shop. I don't need 10,000 concurrent requests. Well, the important point there is, as Michael noted, the project was born out of performance, right? So no matter how big or small your website is, you can reap the benefits of using a more performant-minded web server. And I am kind of the the king of the analogies. I liken Apache to kind of like the family minivan. You know, you can stuff anything in it. You can throw the dog in there. You can spill stuff on the floor. Nobody cares. But it's not going to go very fast. And Nginx is kind of like the the sports car of the web server world in terms of it was designed uh, to be performant. And, you know, we're using layers upon layers these days in terms of what we're implementing on the website. You know, we've got PHP, which is running Yi, which is running Craft, which is talking to MySQL and a whole bunch of other stuff. And it really begs for a performant web server to be a part of that equation. Yeah. And again, going back to your earlier comment, it doesn't matter whether you have dozens of visitors or thousands of visitors, resource utilization and efficiency and responsiveness will benefit you cost-wise, no matter what scale you're operating at, because the cheaper the server that you can put your thing on that'll handle your project, the more margin you have in, in your projects and the more efficient you're being with, with your resources. 
Yeah, and frankly, the better the website you develop for your clients because they'll have more conversions. They'll have fewer people, you know, navigating away because it's slow. And, you know, you can also show them how awesomely performant their website is and you can charge a premium for your services. So, yeah, and, you know, the, uh, other, the other thing about Nginx that I really like, and I do use Nginx even when I am on a project that doesn't necessarily dictate these performance yep. characteristics, but I find that by by working on a system that keeps performance in mind at every layer, I as a developer am forced into good habits about the way I build things and also the way I do my DevOps and the way I administer my servers. And and being forced into good habits, I think, is a good thing. Whether (laughs) you need to be or not, it benefits you and it benefits all the work that you do later down the line. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's also the kind of thing where if you're using a performant web server, <laughs> you can't, uh, you know, and the and the website is slow, it's going to be your fault, yeah. right? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you're, you're going to be the one that is to blame for the slowness. So it will definitely cause you to adopt better habits in that regard, for sure. Yeah. So, um, so both so Andrew and I things... prefer Nginx, but I guess the point is, whether you're using Nginx or Apache, you should be tuning it. Yes. And it's possible to screw anything up, right? (laughs) And Apache, just by its very nature, there are a number of things by default that are just not very good. We talked about it in the last podcast episode that you don't want HT access. You don't want to be using HT access at all. Set allow override to none. And the latency for each request is going to go down dramatically for most installs. There's actually no reason, you know, in these days where you've got server pilot and these other tools that will spin up instances for you, you have access to the comp file. You don't have to use HT access. And in the Apache docs, again, you know, kind of reiterating it, but it's important. They say, do not use HT access unless you cannot do it any other way. And they say that because uh, of the performance implications. It's not like the people that develop Apache don't know what they're doing. They're aware of the performance implications. Just the convenience of HT access, especially back in the days when, you know, before tons of VPSs and Docker and all that fun stuff, they needed shared hosting. So they needed some way to do this. But that's not really the case anymore. So let's cut out the bad habits, you know. Yeah. And that that convenience is just sort of baked into the design of Apache. So if you're running Apache, then you want to make sure that you're not using HT access unless you have to. Of course, Nginx, you get that piece of tuning for free because Nginx forces you to write those rules into the config and they're loaded when the web server starts loaded into memory and so you you sort of get that benefit for free yep and nginx works wonderfully with craft there are any number of configs out there that you can look at or you can come into the relatively new devops channel on the craft slack and there are a bunch of smart people in there that can help you with it but it's just something i want to get people thinking about when they're going to set up their next vps for their client and you know they're using server pilot and there's a little checkbox there, you know, should it be Nginx or should it be Apache? Give Nginx a shot because I think you will like it. And I think that I, I personally don't use server pilot because I'm a, I'm a nerd and I set things up myself. But my understanding is their default way of setting things up now is Apache is actually still running and Nginx is serving as a proxy for it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, because again, Nginx for efficiency's sake doesn't have any built-in pre-processing uh so like stuff like php whereas apache can have php 
baked into it when you set up Apache, Nginx needs another process manager to run to handle things like PHP or, or Python or whatever. And so a lot of times you'll see Apache kind of running in the background to handle just PHP rendering, another very popular choice, which is what I use because most of our servers we set up through Laravel Forge, which is running mm-hmm. an image like the Laravel Homestead image, and it's Nginx, and it uses PHP FPM, which is the fast right. process manager, and that handles handles PHP. So in any case, Nginx is going to proxy any static request directly to the disk or the cache or whatever, and only filter to Apache or to FPM what it needs to to get processed for for php so if you ever see nginx and apache running on the same server or you see nginx and php fpm that's why yeah and i just want to make it clear to people you do not need to have apache running to run craft or to run anything else i know why server pilot did it that way they most likely just didn't want to deal with the support right they wanted they wanted people to just be able to get their site up and running with the hp access file that they have in there and all that kind of fun stuff so i get why they did that but if you do have the choice i would suggest going with nginx and php fpm it's going to be more performant and it is not that hard to set up it really isn't and just i mean to me the idea of running two web servers in this setup just seems wasteful. Yeah, well, and I, you know, I think this also speaks to, you know, yeah, Nginx has been around for a while, but it has been pretty recent that the the documentation and the resources online and the community of people using it has grown ubiquitous right. enough, and also the tool sets, you know, stuff like yep. Server Pilot and Laravel Forge, um, you know, that you can spin up a a really nicely pre-made VPS with very little effort. Like these things have, I think really pushed Nginx into the limelight in the last two to three years. Yep. All right. So basically, you know, when uh, given the choice, give Nginx a shot with PHP FPN. If you are using Apache, that's fine. No one is going to look down on you, but just make some effort to uh, make it performant. Another, Uh, another tuning bit that I do that has made a huge impact on my resource utilization and you have to really tune it for both Apache and Nginx is logs. Tuning. You stole tuning my thunder. Logs. I was I'm about sorry. to say, look. I'm sorry. You, you have. This is the second time we're recording this. Okay, so the first time, I had this great surprise reaction uh, from Michael. Oh, so yeah, Michael, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're, gonna, we're gonna see Rewind. how good of an actor you are. Rewind. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yep. I'm gonna yep, go. tee this one up and let's see how you do. Okay. So, rather, whether you're using Nginx or Apache. One of the things that I'm going to suggest to you, and maybe something that you haven't heard of, Michael, turn the logging off. Disable your log files. Why? Why would I want to turn my log files off, Andrew? (laughs) Because it actually takes a significant amount of time for either server process to log every single GIF, every single PNG, every single JavaScript or whatever that passes through there. And believe it or not, writing those loggers is a pretty hard uh, engineering task. And it also uh, does a ton of disk IO. I mean, think about it. Every single page that gets loaded can have dozens or even hundreds of tiny little resources that are on it. And if you have logging on, it has to write a log to the log file for every single one of those. And, you know, when then you talk about 100 people are accessing your site, well, you've got all the I.O. that is coming from that to load all this stuff, right? 
And then then it's got to also be logging all this stuff. And it actually does make a pretty significant performance dis- difference. And quite frankly, you don't need those logs. Well, and there's you some need logs know... that you need that you want yes. and some logs that you don't need and don't want. Right, right. So you don't need to know that favicon.ico loaded, right? I mean, it's really not a useful thing. So what you're disabling is just the access logs, right? Just the, the logs where it's, you know, saying that it loaded this image, it loaded this file, the, this, that, the other thing. As opposed to you really the don't error need logs. Yes, the error logs you want to keep on, and those are the exceptional events, right? Assuming that you have your web server <laughs> reasonably configured, which hopefully you do, you're not going to be getting a ton of error logs. And you do want those enabled because post-mortem, when you come back in, you want to be able to look at them and figure out what went wrong. But in these days of Google Analytics and any number of other tracking tools, no one is tailing their log files to see people accessing their site. I mean, I, I actually remember. Oh, yeah. I'm old enough that back in the day, we were actually running Netscape server on an SGI server. Okay, <laughs> back when SGI was a thing. And, Don't laugh. And tailing your access logs. And I was tailing the access logs to see people accessing the site. Who's on the site. (laughs) Right. And, you know, got excited when people from all over the place were accessing it. Anyway, whatever. So, so Andrew. The point is, we don't need that. Tell me. Yeah. How do I go about turning off my logs? I'll tell you what, Michael. I'm glad you asked that question. It's actually really easy. Okay? If you're using Nginx, you just put a line in there that says access underscore log off. That's it. You're done. Restart the uh, Nginx server, and it will no longer be logging all your favicon.icos and chewing up your your disk space and hammering your cache just to log useless information that ends up getting you know rotated and deleted before you ever see it anyway. Right? What about Apache? Um, and if you want to do the same thing on Apache, it's very similar. Um, you just do access log slash dev slash null combined, which basically is saying to Apache, you know, send this information off into the abyss. Nothing is written to memory or the disk. And you also do custom log slash dev slash null combined. There you go. Restart Apache, uh, you know, sudo Apache control restart or, or whatever. And you will no longer be logging all that useless crap in Apache either. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, you know, it's going to make a small difference, but not doing it is pointless, to, right? You know, because it's just a waste. To be honest, when I've I, I've had some setups where it did not make a small difference, I've had some setups okay. where it made a very significant difference to I believe it to disable logs. So, so highly recommended. Whether you're running Nginx or Apache, of course, we recommend Nginx. Get to know it; it's a very powerful tool. But whether you're running Nginx or Apache, tune it up so that you're not making your server do more work than it needs to. And turn your access logs off. You don't need them, right? So now I think we're going to get to what is probably going to be the uh, single biggest uh, performance improvement for people that are using Craft. Yeah, let's talk Um, about PHP. Yeah, let's talk about PHP 7, right? So PHP 7, they did an amazing job optimizing PHP 7. Craft has worked with uh, PHP 7 ever since... I think it's like an old 2.4 version or yeah i'm pretty sure it's been a while it's been quite some time and there is no excuse for not using php 7 it will literally make everything that you're running in terms of craft twice as fast it will have 
your time to first byte. It will have the execution time uh, of anything you know moderately complicated that you're running on there. And from that point of view, I mean, it's just a godsend. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know? it's an, an incredible improvement for very very little effort. And PHP seven, um, even though it's relatively new, is very very widely available. I mean, e- like server pilot. VPSs and Laravel Forge VPSs spin up PHP 7 by default, but even yep. like DreamHost has PHP 7 now. Yeah, and if your host does not have PHP 7 by now, don't don't. I would that strongly host. consider moving. No, I'm serious. And there yeah. are some there are some fairly, you know, well known hosts that are still not using PHP 7. And not only do I want the extra performance that it offers, but that also says something to me about that host. You know, if they're not running PHP 7 by now, it just tells me a lot about, you know, where they're at. Or or at least Um, giving you the option of running PHP 7. Right. And it's, you know, you you no longer have to do anything funky uh, to install it. You can just apt-get it or yum install, you know, whether you're using Red Hat or uh, CentOS, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, sorry, Ubuntu or CentOS. And ImageMagick now is a native package for it. I mean, there's really no hassle involved in setting this up at all. Yeah. Especially if you're, you're using something like, uh, you know, some of those tools you mentioned. You just click a checkbox. Yeah. Right? And I would also strongly consider, you know, if you have any client sites that you curate that, you know, maybe there are some performance issues with them or whatever, I mean, consider migrating them Mm -hmm. to PHP 7, kind of the way that I did. You will, you know, after just getting the setup right and moving uh, moving them over... Without doing anything else, it's going to be twice as fast. Yeah, and of course, we're, you know? we're talking about performance benefits. There's also lots of other benefits to running PHP 7, not the least of which uh, is the null coalescing operator, which, as you know, I have a real love affair with. But, uh, but lots of, of great um, programmer-oriented features. Oh. In, See, I in thought PHP you were going to tell me that it, it would make me more charming and attractive if I ran PHP 7. Well, I don't think that you could be any more charming <laughs> or attractive. <laughs> or the universe would explode. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, for sure, PHP 7 offers a ton of benefits. And for newer projects, there is no excuse to not use it. And for older projects, you know, uh, clients that you curate their sites, I would talk to them about a proposal about migrating to it because the benefits are really just that good. Yeah, cutting your PHP processing time in half for free is a real no-brainer. And as long as we're using PHP 7 um, with our new modern server, let's talk about HTTP 2. Right. See, this is one of those kind of like... It reminds me of like a, a unicorn or you know, some other exotic animal that people talk about from the point of view of, well, you know, it's kind of mythical and I've never really seen one, but I've heard that it exists, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? But HTTP2 is kind of a big deal. You know, it, it gets the nerd in me excited. But what it really is, is it's really the first major revamping of the protocol, which is HTTP which is the Hypertext trans- Transport something protocol? Hypertext Transfer Protocol, yeah. Yeah, okay. Which has been stuck at 1.1 for, I think, like 17 years, 13 years, something like that. It's been yeah. a long time. HTTP is the language that a client, like a web browser, uses right. to speak to a server. 
right. it's their common set of of nouns and adjectives and verbs that they can use to to shuttle information and one yeah. thing can it's, ask it, for something from the other yeah it's the protocol that is used for web browsers like ftp is another protocol and yada 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 so what makes http2 kind of cool is first of all it is a binary protocol as opposed to a textual protocol you know people listening might say oh that sounds really nerdy who cares well a binary protocol uh, is going to be a lot less chatty. It's going to be a lot more efficient mm-hmm. uh, and a lot more structured. Right. Um, go ahead. The, uh, the reason for that, and it's also a lot less error prone, the reason for that is because binary data is much more efficient to transport and parse than text is. You have to do a lot more work to parse text content, and there's a lot more different ways to parse it. And so you open yourself up to some implementation inconsistency and and some error avoidance work that you just don't need with with binary data so binary data lets you shuttle less data over the wire less redundance less parsing effort less everything so you have smaller packets and fewer errors yeah and to use kind of uh, some of the absolutely terrible internet analogies from the 90s you know information superhighway and all that kind of crap um, I mean, I guess you could think of uh, HTTP2 as kind of the infrastructure of that, you know, the the roads or whatever. So we're going to be we're going to be on some nice, smoothly paved roads. And uh, another really cool thing that it does is it is multiplexed. And what multiplex means really is that you can have multiple things flying in the air at the same time, right? In other words, on a modern website, that's my dog, by the way. <laughs> On a modern website, you'll have you know tons of little images and JavaScripts and all sorts of things that need to get loaded. For HTTP 1.1, that was done linearly. Right. You know, this thing's got to load, and then this thing. And they tried to solve that with some uh, some hacks, but really, what was needed was a total redesign. So HTTP 2 is really designed for the way web pages are these days, with all sorts of stuff flying in the air, you know, back and forth at the same time, and it keeps that one connection open. Right. or the duration of all of the files that are being requested and, and transferring back and forth across it. Yeah, so whereas with HTTP 1, each different resource that was going to get transmitted required a separate connection, and it required all of the overhead of spinning up a connection and receiving a resource, and nothing else could happen until that connection closed and another connection opened. And of course, there were you know some workarounds to this, what we call the head-of-line blocking problem. But... With HTTP 2, instead of having lots of different connections that open and close linearly, you just have one connection, one big pipe that you can send all of your stuff in, and then the client can even send stuff back, which yeah. is which is nice not just for performance because you're or for the performance of of your site because you're avoiding all of that overhead and the time that it takes to spin up a, a new request and the overhead of the headers that have to be sent with every single request. But also, there's performance implications for the networks as well. Because Absolutely. if you only, if your website only needs one pipe rather than many, then it means that other things that are happening on the network aren't getting spoiled and held up if you all of a sudden need to monopolize all of the pipes. Right. And so, uh, so it makes right. networks so- in general much more performant. 
Yeah, I mean, Michael, it's clear to me that you don't really understand this. Uh, so I'm going to explain it to you in an analogy that you'll get, okay. being a, a Texas boy down there. <laughs> so imagine you walk out in the morning on your farm and you got to feed the pigs, right? And you, you can take a bucket full of food and just put it there, and then all these pigs are going to you know run in and try and eat out of the bucket at the same time, and the big one that gets there first is going to gorge himself, and the other ones are going to be starved, and there's mass chaos everywhere. Versus with, you know, and that's kind of HTTP 1.1, right? HTTP 2, you have a nice big trough that you can dump all that food out in and all the pigs can walk up and they can all eat it at the same time. That is the most original (laughs) explanation of HTTP 2 that I have ever heard. Right and well, you know, I wanted you to be able I've, as a farm you know, boy. I've fed quite I wanted a few you to pigs be able to relate in my time, and and yeah. so that analogy makes perfect sense. And of course, there's right. all sorts of other cool reasons why HTTP two yes. is awesome. Things like bidirectional communication and that you know persistent connection, enabling all kinds of cool stuff from a, a development standpoint. Right. But you know, like we say, we're focusing on performance, and so if right. you can if you can help it. It'd be really cool if you were running HTTP2 on your server. Now, a lot of people are very concerned if I switch to HTTP2, all of my legacy, anyone who tries to to access my site with a legacy browser is out of luck. False. Untrue. Tell us. If they access your website using an older browser, and at this point it's got to be fairly old, it will fall back, and it will still use HTTP 1.1. Yeah. So it's no reason not to do it. And the real thing that I kind of want to make clear is, you know, all the nerd speak aside that we're talking about, using HTTP 2, it's going to make your websites faster, and it's going to make your visitors' experience, especially with modern websites with ton of stuff all over the place, it's going to make it better, Yeah. right? And it's not some crazy exotic thing that's years down the road the time is now to start using it. Yeah, modern browsers. Uh, all the modern speak yep, HTTP. All too. the modern browsers supported. All the the fancy phones that people are have in their pocket. They all work with it. Yeah, and like you and, said, if you have a client like an older browser or you know something like Curl or yeah. something that's not a browser that only speaks HTTP one, it's fine. It's background compatible. Yep. It's still going to work, so there is no downside to doing it. Yeah. Now, before um, you you get to setting up HTTP2 on your server, there is one requirement, and that is that you've got to be using a secure connection. And so the first right. thing you got to do is go get an SSL cert. Right. And this is actually not a limitation of the HTTP2 protocol. This is just the browser manufacturers said, you know what? We're not going to bother. The web is moving towards uh, secure TLS connections. We are not even going to support this protocol unless it is via TLS, which is, you know, SSL or you might know it as HTTPS or whatever. So you might say, well, that sucks. I've got to go get this SSL certificate. That sounds like a lot of work. However, it is not a lot of work. Would you like to tell everyone why, Michael? Well, getting an SSL cert all kinds of different ways is just way easier now than it used to be. But there is this... Right. really nifty service that has been gaining traction and popularity lately called Let's Encrypt. Uh, and it's actually baked in now to a bunch of different servers. It's baked into Laravel Forge. It's baked into... And it's you know, free! It's a one-click. I feel like there should be a neon sign flashing. Yeah, free, one-click, free, one-click free, install, free. And, and it's free. And basically, Let's Encrypt is this organization that was spun up specifically to be able to 
instantaneously on demand issue a free SSL cert and they last for for a few months I think they last for 90 days each but yeah yep. but they give you a, a URL and you just set a cron job to hit that URL and it refreshes your your cert and so it's super easy now on every single site that you do to get it running over SSL which as we talked yep. about in previous episodes has an SEO benefit as well but mm-hmm. But now also It's almost like all this stuff is tied it's together. It's almost as though development is just a multifaceted discipline. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but this Let's Encrypt, uh, you know, if you go to letsencrypt.org, it's from the Linux Foundation. It is backed by a ton of big players, you know, Cisco, Mozilla, Facebook, yada, Google, yada, yada, yada. This is not a fly by night organization. It is easy to get a certificate, it is easy to renew them. And the benefits are fantastic. You're going to be able to get that uh, boost in SEO. You're going to have that nice little lock next to your website, and you're going to be able to use HTTP too. Right. So, I'm, so I'm use I'm uh, I've got my secure connection, and also I'm running a modern version of my web server. So like Nginx 1.9.5 or later, for example. Yep. Or Apache, I think 2.4. Point something. So so I'm running. A relatively recent version of my web server and I've got my security certificate. Now Andrew. Yes, sir. Tell us. How oh do I start running HTTP two on my server? Oh my god. Ask me if it's hard. Andrew, is it hard? I'm a, oh, I'm afraid. it is so not hard. I'm afraid it is that so it's not hard. hard. It's not hard. It's not hard. I swear <laughs> it's not hard. First of all, if you're using, you know, some of these automated tools, it's just a, a checkbox. If you're doing it yourself, to add it to Nginx, you add one word to the config file, and that's it. All you do is the, the line where it says, you know, listen, 443, SSL, you add HTTP2. That's it. You restart the web server, and you are running HTTP2. So all that's I have it. to do is add one word to one line of my config file, and magically, I get all of the benefits of header compression and binary communication and all of this stuff. I just have to add one word. But wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> if you want, it's very easy on Apache 2. All you need is mod HTTP 2. And then you just add one line. It says protocols. And then you add H2, which stands for HTTP 2, to that line. Restart Apache, and you are running HTTP2. Yeah. That's it. And, you know, That's it. A- Andrew and I are, are being a little bit kitschy, but I, the, the theme that we're, you know, trying to illustrate here is this stuff is such a freebie to be running all of these new technologies, and given the benefit that you get, there's absolutely no reason not to. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I don't know why you called me kitschy. I'm not in a bad mood or anything, but, you know, whatever. You're going to be S- like that. That's fine. Doesn't, kitschy means, like, silly. Like, Oh, it doesn't mean bitchy? No, it means kitschy. Oh, God. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the point why are you is... Why are going to be so bitchy all the time? Yeah, the point is this stuff is easy, right? And really the point I want to hammer home, both with Nginx and with HTTP2, is that this stuff is not, I mean, you you may have heard about it for some time or whatever. The time is now. This is not a future thing. People are using this stuff now. 
and they are getting better performance out of it now. Same thing with PHP 7. This is not some exotic thing that you should not be paying attention to. The time is now to get on board with this stuff, and it will make your life easier. Yeah. And you will be more charming and more attractive if you use this stuff. I can guarantee that. Yeah, so let's talk about one more. We've talked about the server. Wait, wait. Oh, oh, sorry. I want to add one more thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So once you have HTTP2 running, how do you know that it works, right? Wait, 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 um, wait, wait, there wait, is... wait, wait, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Once I have HTTP2 running, how do I know if it works? Aha, I'm glad you asked that, Michael. If you Google HTTP2 Chrome, there's a Chrome extension that you can install, and it will put a little lightning bolt in the upper right-hand corner of your web browser when you are on a website that supports HTTP2. And that is a kind of simple way that you can test whether your website is actually running uh, HTTP2 or not. All right, so now we've talked about the server layer, we've talked about the PHP layer, we've talked about the transport layer, Let's talk about the database layer. What is this MariaDB that I've been hearing so much about? So MariaDB, the important thing that I think people need to take away from this is that it is MySQL. Okay, it is a uh, it is an actual fork of the MySQL code base that was that is headed by and still is by the guy that originally wrote MySQL to begin with. Yeah. It is currently 100% binary compatible. It means you can just start, you can stop MySQL running and you can just start MariaDB running and it will all just work. And even, you know, down the road when performance improvements happen or structural changes happen or whatever, the actual SQL language, you know, when you do a database dump or whatever, that is always going to be compatible with that. So you'll be able to dump it kind of in and out an interesting tidbit that uh, was in our, our last recording that I didn't know, and you looked it up. So MariaDB is actually named after the uh, the author of MySQL. Uh, it's his second daughter, and apparently his thir- first daughter was named... His first daughter was named... Uh, Mai. 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 Right. So the Mai in MySQL, apparently... I always thought it was like, you know, my personal SQL. Apparently, it's his first daughter's name, which I had no idea. That's that's the, cool. the legend, anyway. You looked it up. It, you uh, read it on I the I read internet. it on the it internet, so it must be true. Right. No, but, but MariaDB, basically what happened is Oracle bought MySQL. Wait, that's not right. Who bought what? who? Bought who? Oracle, bought, Oracle now owns MySQL, and that's one of the reasons why... The original author of it decided to fork it because you know, I mean, whatever. He's anti-establishment. No, wasn't no, no, sure no, what they're no, going to no, do with the code anti- base or licensing owned, or whatever. Who owned? Why is he called before? Okay, so so Oracle bought uh, came into ownership of MySQL. I forget if there was a, a transaction there in the middle, but Oracle already maintains their Oracle DB stack, and so a lot of the MySQL community wanted to fork the project because they perceived that not as much love was being given to MySQL under Oracle's stewardship than as a purely open and independent project. And so they created this fork, and uh, there was a, there were a lot of community reasons for that, but also the big difference between, like the big practical difference between the Oracle fork of MySQL and the MariaDB fork of MySQL is that the MariaDB fork is moving a lot faster. And there's a lot mm-hmm. more transparency in the development 
and in in the roadmap and in the individual commits and in the leadership and so it's progressing very very aggressively there's a few performance sort of resource utilization tweaks that that maria db makes that lowers its footprint in terms of resources and i have seen between four and seven percent increases in query speed just out of the box when i switch to to maria db so it's a little bit faster Uh, on the queries there's also they're opening it up to to different storage engines and stuff like that so but basically it's just moving faster lots more transparency especially in in security releases it it's proving to be a more modern fork of of mysql and of course we we keep saying fork because if you go to your server and whether you're running the oracle mysql or you're running mariadb your server just says hey i'm running mysql Right. Your right. server doesn't that's care. Yeah, that's the important thing to keep in mind. In, in a lot of installs, like Ubuntu, for instance, you're going to be using MariaDB. Yeah. Like that's what they install by default. And the important thing to keep in mind is the command is still MySQL, right? Yeah. It's still MySQL dump to dump it. Mm-hmm. Everything is the same. Yeah. It's just a different engine under the hood. So it's not something to, not something you need to be worried about. Like, oh, you know, I don't know if I want to use this. I'm not sure what's going to change. I don't know if it's going to work. Yeah. Nothing is going to change. Straight and up it is drop going in replacement. Yeah. It is going to work 100%. And because we strive for uh, accuracy here at the, the Craft Podcast, so I did a, a quick lookup. MySQL was created by a Swedish company, MySQL AB. They were acquired they by were acquired Sun Microsystems by Sun. in 2008. That's right. Right, and then it is later on down the road that that Oracle, uh, you know, ended up acquiring them after the uh, kind of downfall of, of Sun. So, in addition to the performance improvements from MariaDB, which is you know this is the performance podcast, mm-hmm. we care about this, right? They also have a a, a new schema for doing the indexes, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, Aria. I believe it's called, which is actually crash resistant so that it will be able to recover damaged databases much more easily than in it. What is it? InnoDB mm-hmm. is the other one. And there's also MySami. Right. Are they, well, these are kind of and, and that's what I, that's what I mean when I say they're opening up to different storage engines, even stuff like spider for sharding and you do fractal indexes and all kinds yep. of like taint resistant stuff the the point that you should take <laughs> away from this whole th- discussion maria db is a hundred percent compatible and it will just work don't be scared of it and by dropping it's it in, more performant you get performance yep, it, benefits yeah it's more performant and there it's a much more rapid pace of development and is bringing you you know more crash resistant indexes and some other uh, kind of really cool stuff so playing in the theme of these other things we talked about, Nginx, PHP 7, HTTP 2, don't be scared of MariaDB. Yep. It is 100% compatible, it is faster, it is better, and it is very likely the future. Yeah, and it, again, a lot of hosts are spin up MariaDB out of the box, like Laravel Forage again gives you the MariaDB MySQL out of the box, and it's a one-click install on a bunch of other hosts, so definitely something worth trying out. You know, I think a... A good point to make is, as we're talking about all this stuff, even I hope that we're doing a good job of illustrating just how easy it is to get up and running with these modern variants of these old components. But even if doing all of this stuff at once is intimidating, this is stuff that you can try, you know, one piece at a time. So maybe on my next project, 
I make sure that it runs PHP 7. And on the project after that, I'm going to run PHP 7 on Nginx. And the project mm-hmm. after that, I'm going to give it an SSL cert and HTTP 2 from the get-go. And then maybe on the project after that, then I drop in Maria instead of the, the default Oracle fork of, of MySQL. And so you can do these things in piecemeal in a way that can kind of work them gradually into your workflow and into your stock set up yep. and get acquainted with these things at your own pace. But uh, the theme of, of this episode is really all of this stuff is very, very accessible and very rapidly becoming even more accessible. And so, like you said, the time is now because mm-hmm. each of these components individually, but also and especially all of these components together are going to give you very, very noticeable performance benefits, which comes yep. then to affect your your client user experience because they get a, a faster site, which will perform better and convert better, but also there's dollars attached because you're not yes. spending as much money to beef up your, your servers, and so you can allocate those resources into other aspects of administration and maintenance to make your projects kind of more sustainable and more profitable. Right. And kind of playing off of what I mentioned in the last couple of podcasts, if you're not doing this stuff, your competitors are, yeah, for sure. And technology is going to constantly be marching forward. And at some point, you have to start looking at adopting what is new and great. And really, what we're trying to say here is these things that we've mentioned, they are the thing to be doing now. Yeah. If you are not doing them, your competitors will be. Oh, and these, will and be these are not fads. To... These are continuations no. of the tried and true. Right. Yeah. And in addition to that, I can tell you just from personal experience that if you are adopting these things, and I wouldn't even call them cutting edge anymore. You know, I would say that they're just best practices. Yeah. I would definitely not call any of this stuff that we mentioned cutting edge because a ton of people are, are doing it. But I can tell you from personal experience that you will also get more interesting jobs and being able to charge more for them yeah. because the clients that are doing really big projects really do care about the performance and they really do care that their website doesn't perform and thus is turning away, you know, 30% of their mobile traffic. Sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of money involved in that type of thing. And if you walk in to pitch that job and, you know, a CTO is asking you about HTTP and you're giving him a deer in the headlights look, it doesn't matter how good you are at implementing craft. Somebody on that project, somebody in the team needs to know the performance implications of these infrastructural things. Yep. And and if you don't, then now's the time. Take one of these things at a time and really learn about them. You will have a better big picture view of just the internet's technology in general. But also, like we said earlier, using these more modern components forces you into other good practices elsewhere that will make you a better developer in general. Yeah, and, you know, you can do it piecemeal, like Michael said, or, you know, I I took the whole hog approach where I said, you know what, I'm just going to make a new VPS that has modern everything, and I'm going to start moving some sites over. And you can start, you know, you might start with your own site, Mm -hmm. whether you're a freelancer or an independent contractor or an agency, and you might say, well, look, we're going to learn this stuff, and we're not going to learn it by fumbling through a, a client's project. We're going to move our site 
to this modern platform and we're going to learn everything that we can in the process of doing this. And then we can start replicating that for our clients. So I took some of my sites and I moved them over. And I, you know, being the, the performance nerd that I am, I took metrics before and after uh, with Google PageSpeed Insights, GT Metrics, you know, a whole bunch of the, the tools that we mentioned. So one of the, the sites that I moved over is the pluginfactory.io. And I did a GT Metrics measure of the, the page uh, before and after. Before, it was taking 1.8 seconds to load the entire page, which, you know, for a website is actually pretty decent. After moving it, and that's from moving it from a traditional LAMP server, after moving it to my new VPS, it went down to 0.8 seconds. Hmm. So it's more than twice as fast yeah. in terms of the stuff that is loaded. We, we've seen very similar results. We've seen yeah. sites that just by moving them to a modern host drop from seconds to milliseconds in time to first byte. Yeah. And, you know, in all of the metrics that I use across the board for testing this stuff, the improvements were about twice as fast. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I, I can't even tell you, like, just from a user's point of view, when I load a website like this in my mobile phone, I am so happy when it just snap That's and right. it loads. I mean, it, it just makes me happy to see that. Not even from a you know, development point of view. But just from the point of view of a person that I don't want to sit here waiting for this damn thing to load. And that instant satisfaction is is pretty fantastic. Yeah. So I think that's a good spot to wrap up this episode. So we're sort of um, to kind of zoom out one more time to the big picture. We've now we've covered uh, in-browser rendering and performance yep. implications there. In this episode, we talked about the server stack and how we optimize our time to first byte. And that really that does leave us a good opening for for one more episode to talk about template performance because this stuff all of this stuff really is very multifaceted and each layer relies on the other layers being being good and so so I think yep. next time we should talk about template optimization and, and caching and proxy caching and and that that sort of stuff but that'll be on the next episode I think we've I think we've covered server side server stack stuff pretty well yeah yeah i think it's good and it's important you you nailed it that there are a ton of things that go into performance right it's not one thing and if you screw up any part of it it that is going you're going to only going to be as fast as your weakest link that's right right so it makes sense to kind of focus on this stuff and i actually like the way that we're kind of building up to the templates that you are actually crafting crafting you see what i did there (laughs) inside of yeah (laughs) Thank you. Inside of craft, right? Because that's kind of at the highest level. And honestly, that's probably what most of the people that are listening to this podcast are focused on. So it's nice that we're leading up to it. But I also think it's super important that we talked about some of the DevOps and nerdy stuff under the hood because you want to get that kind of stuff out of the way. You want to make sure that the platform you are running these wonderful websites you craft on is performance. Yeah. It's a honestly it's an aspect of building websites for clients that I find a lot of people don't focus on. Yeah, well, it's becoming a lot more accessible now than it has been in in years past. And that's that's very exciting for me and my own self-education. Just a lot of this stuff is just so much more accessible now than it has been. And of course, uh, if you have questions, dear listener, about this stuff, you can find us in the Slack. I'm there on Central Time and Andrew's there pretty much 24/7. Whatever. Um, 
you can also uh, go to our website, craftpodcast.com. This episode will be at craftpodcast.com slash 10. And uh, you can leave us comments there and, and ask us questions about stuff that we talked about or stuff that we didn't talk about. And, uh, and we love getting your feedback there. You can also find us on Twitter at craftpodcast and email us your questions and suggestions. Hello at craftpodcast.com. Dot com. If you like what we're doing, it would be really swell if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, or if Stitcher is your thing, then we're going to try to get the podcast into Stitcher here pretty soon, and you can leave us a review there. We like any and all feedback, and just leaving yeah. a review helps us a ton to get the word out about this podcast. So, yeah, give us some feedback because, I mean... It gets lonely otherwise. Is, it gets lonely, and, and this is the second time that we recorded this podcast on this material, <laughs> right? And not only that, not only that, I got out of the tub to do this podcast. Now, yeah, I, I do, people that know me, they seem a little strange, but I do a decent amount of work in the tub. Have you ever done any kind of development like that? You know, you know, I haven't, but I imagine that it must have been really comfortable in your bathtub for you to get out of your bathtub to record this podcast. The least anybody could do is just is just leave a review on iTunes. Right. Be, How hard is small. that? How hard is that? Of course, if you really yeah. like what we're doing and you're interested in sponsoring the show, that's a thing that would be immensely helpful to us right now as we're trying to grow the show, record more frequently. Uh, it takes a lot of, of work to edit these episodes and and, uh, make them nice and clean for you. So if you've got uh, a product or a service or a brand that you're interested in featuring and and you'd like to sponsor an episode, please do get in touch. Hello at craftpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. Michael, I thought we were, I thought we decided to outsource outsource the, uh, the editing of this podcast to Bangladeshi child, right? To save money. We were looking at that option, but I think that... So if you don't want the children to the suffer, f- yeah. <laughs> like... you should consider sponsoring the Craft Podcast. Oh, if you care at all about children. You're a horrible person. Oh. <laughs> all right, guys, we got to wrap it up. We'll see you next time. Please get in touch with your questions and suggestions. We'll be back to talk about template performance later But in the meantime, keep building cool stuff, and we'll see you later. Mm